is uh, revenge ever justified? Is it ever right to take the law into your own hands? I'm not talking about an act of self-defense. I'm talking about going after someone when the courts have failed you. What do you do? Just imagine you're stopped at a red light. There's a car in front of you. Then all of a sudden, that car in front of you violently backs up into you. And then three people get out. They're holding their necks. They're claiming they're all injured. They start taking video. They pretend to be injured on video. They call the cops. And they're saying that you rear-ended them. Meanwhile, you're alone. There's no witnesses. You're in trouble. This is an insurance scam, and it sounds like you're about to be played. The cops and the insurance companies all side with a car that looks like it got rear-ended, and there's really nothing you can do. No one believes your story. It's three against one. So what would you do here? The courts will not be able to help you. There's no evidence in your favor. You're just going to be forced to pay up. It is a great injustice. So does that mean you should take matters into your own hands to, to gain justice, to get some justice here? Maybe from their license plate, you can track them down. And, and then what? Key their car, slash their tires, break a windshield, you know, make them pay. They made you pay. Make them pay a little bit. Or maybe take it a step further. Why not just rob them and get back some of the money they made you pay in this insurance scam? It sounds fair, right? Eye for an eye. Isn't this how most revenge works? The person suffers some wrong or injustice that the courts can do nothing. They, they gain no justice in the world. But someone's got to pay. Something must be done. And so they take justice into their own hands and enact their own personal style of vengeance. There's countless stories of such revenge throughout history, but I trust you know it, they never end well. Revenge is not our place. I bet you've heard of the old Chinese proverb that when seeking revenge, dig two graves. And in that case, they actually reflect some sound biblical wisdom. For scripture calls us away from the path of revenge. It's not for us to seek vengeance. But but still, you, you question, you wonder, like, but what about when the justice system fails? What if you have a, a guilty person, they've wronged us, they've escaped punishment, I'm like, what are we supposed to do? Just, just let them go? This happens all the time, but we as God's people, we are called to trust him. It's God's place to repay, to serve justice in the end, and that's precisely what he promises to do. We are to trust him. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. And then Romans 12, 17 and 19 says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never pay back. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are simply called to Trust God and trust that he will set all things right in the end. Perfect justice will be served. Now, the problem a lot of people have with this, though, is that it it takes too long. Like, God's perfect justice, okay, that sounds great, but like, can we speed this up? It's just taking too long. Someone just made us suffer. They need to pay, like, now. But the problem is God's perfect justice may not come in our lifetime, may not come in their lifetime may not come till the next life. First Timothy 5.24 says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them into judgment, but the sins of others follow after. We're assured, though, that it's going to come. And for us, though, this becomes a test. It's a test of faith, a test of trust. Will you trust God is good, he's righteous, he's just, and he will do what is right In the end, will you trust him to judge rightly? Not yourself. You'll trust him to judge rightly. We may want God to act on our timetable, but his ways are not our ways. His plans are not always our plans. And so do you know what you need to do about that? Just wait. Just wait patiently. Even if you're suffering injustice, just wait. Wait on the Lord. It's not my message. This message comes from James to us this morning, from James chapter 5. You can open your Bibles there now. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. That's our passage today. James 5, 7 through 11. And here it's James who tells the church to wait, to be patient until the coming of the Lord. 
Even if this means enduring unjust treatment, the church needs to know that the judge is standing right at the door. This passage, James 5, 7 through 11, comes right on the heels of verses 1 through 6. We observed that last week where James gives, you'd say, a, a verbal lashing to the wicked rich. He channels his inner Old Testament prophet and pronounces an oracle of judgment on the wicked rich. And the problem is not that the rich, it's not inherently sinful to be rich. The problem is how they gain their riches, how they use them, how they relied on them. And theirs was an unjust gain, with, which came at the expense of the poor and the needy. They made wealth their God. And James lets them know their, their God is going to fail them and even betray them in the end. Testify against them on the day of judgment. Speaking of which, in the previous passage, if you, if you notice, James alludes to this day of judgment several times. This coming day. He says back in verse 3 that it's in the last days that they have stored up their treasure. And in verse 5, they've fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter. A day of reckoning is coming, and so let the wicked rich be warned. Repent, turn to Christ, change your ways before that day comes. Now, this passage, verses 1 through 6, we found it does not directly relate to the church. is a message of really warning and judgment for the wicked, unbelieving, and the rich. And in the day of James, really 99% of the church would have identified with the poor and the oppressed, not the rich. But as we point out last week in affluent America, that's changed quite a bit. And I think we more so identify with the rich. I mean, even if you're lower class in America, by the world standard and by history standard, you're still pretty rich. I think most of us have never been in want of food, shelter, and clothing. And so the church today, especially in America, needs to take these words to heart, examine self. It's not wrong to be wealthy, but you are likewise going to be held accountable for how you gained your wealth, how you used it, how you relied on it. And we need to be warned and reminded that the gospel is meant to change the greedy into givers. So that was all last week. Now, that being said, although most Christians in America no longer really identify with abject poverty like the early church, one thing we still identify with that's here in James is oppression. Now, granted, we're not living under widespread systemic life and death persecution like the early church, but I bet you'd agree with me that you know, persecution against Christians is on the rise in America. The writing's on the walls. America has fostered a mostly cultural Christianity. The true biblical Christianity has always been in the minority. And as the culture changes, especially with the sexual revolution, which is just mutually exclusive with scripture, you're going to see cultural Christianity change to adopt that, to accept that, to, to go with the flow. But biblical Christianity will not. And so you're going to find a small number of Christians who are placed out into the open, exposed. You know, the people who still actually believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And, and what it says is true. But they will become the new oppressed minority. And so the days of persecution and oppression, they may come again. And aren't we kind of seeing that? You know, we're not at the point of shedding blood, but have not people lost their jobs? lost their careers, lost their reputations, suffering character assassination, ridicule, mockery. As in the day of James, you had the rich and the powerful use the courts to effectively murder and silence the righteous. The day may come soon where God's people are no longer really protected by the courts, by justice in the land. And if those days come again, what will you do? How will you respond? Even now, if you suffer some injustice, like these early believers were, right and left, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to take matters into your own hands? Become a vigilante. And what do you think James, the half-brother of the Lord, has to say about that? We're going to find out. He says, just, just wait. Just patiently wait. Patiently endure. You need to wait on and trust in the Lord to 
deliver you. It's a hard message. It's not popular. It's not satisfying. We, we want something active. Can we do something? And this is doing something. It's just actively trusting, actively waiting, actively enduring. It's a message I believe the church needs to hear, and we will this morning from James. Let's read James 5, 7 through 11. It's getting close to the end. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And we'll stop there. This passage is entirely dominated by the main command, which is the beginning of verse 7. It starts and says, therefore, meaning what he says here has to hang off of everything he said in verses 1 through 6. And so in light of the oppression among the rich and the, the powerful in verses 1 through 6, he says, therefore, rise up, form a militia, and, and kill them before they can kill you. No, it doesn't say that. Just checking. It says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The command is to be patient. Macrothumeo is the word. It's a compound word from macros, long, thumos, or thumeo, anger. And it means long-angered, long-tempered. We talk about people being short-tempered. It means they have a short fuse. It doesn't take much for them to, to go off. You push a few buttons and the fuse is lit. And just a second later, like a volcano, they explode and they, they spew wrath on people around them. This word is the opposite. To be patient means you have a long fuse. People can push your buttons over and over, but you're not going to blow up. You're going to control your, your tongue, control your anger, and just patiently wait. Long-suffering. And this patience is somewhat passive. It's kind of like waiting for a wound to heal. Sometimes all you can do is hurry up and wait. Especially when things are out of your control. In addition, this word, macrothumeo, carries the, the nuance of being long-suffering toward people. In a little bit, James is going to talk to us about patiently enduring difficult circumstances. But first, he seems to tell us to patiently endure difficult people. And after all, it was ungodly people that were making the lives of these early Christians very difficult. And that still happens today. But are we not called to love our neighbors and even love our enemies? If that's the case, well, you have to remember 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. Macrothumeo, same word. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient with all. There's no exceptions. Be, be patient with all. And so the church is commanded to wait patiently, even in the face of oppression. Wait on God to deliver, answer, judge. You ask, well, how long? Like, how long are we supposed to wait? How long of a fuse do we need? And he says, verse 7, just to, to wait, to be patient. Until the coming of the Lord. That's all. Just be patient until the coming of the Lord. This word for coming is another well-known term in the New Testament. Speaking of the second coming, that parousia. You may have heard that word before. The parousia means arrival, coming. It was used of, of the coming of the king. And the New Testament becomes really a technical term for the coming of King Jesus. The second coming, the parousia. And this will not be a coming in humiliation like the first, but exaltation, where the king will return to rule and reign. And there will be a judgment, a separation of the sheep and the goats during that time to those who will enter the kingdom with him. But what James is telling us, though, is that our ultimate deliverance is not guaranteed until 
the coming of the Lord. We have no promise of perfect justice in this life. That's because this world has fallen. It's in the hands of wicked men. It's, it's led by the prince of the power of the air. And so some ju- injustice remains for now. We hope for justice. We look for it. We promote it. But we will not ultimately get it until Christ comes. And so this means we just need to make his future coming our, our real hope, our functional hope in life. That day will be the day of, of deliverance and rescue and, and, and righteous judgment where King Jesus will set all things right. But until that day, he says, just be patient, be long-suffering. That day is not today. It may not be tomorrow. It may be tomorrow. Whatever it is, just be patient, patiently endure. Now, we could leave it at that. Just move on. It's, it's a simple enough message. It's, it's an important message, but we're not going to do that because James doesn't do that. He has a lot more to say. And everything he says after this really just serves to support and illustrate this command to be patient until the, the coming of the Lord. He wants to drive this home and illustrate this, that we get it and then do it. And so specifically from here on, he gives three examples of suffering patiently. Three examples of suffering patiently. So you may learn to trust the Lord to judge and deliver. And we want to learn from these three examples now. Three examples of suffering patiently. First, like the farmer, wait for the reward. Verse 7, like the farmer, wait for the reward. Look again at verse 7. Get the main command. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And then first example. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. The ancient Near East farmer knew a lot about waiting. This is an old word, speaks of an eager expectation, a longing. And what was he waiting for? Ultimately, the farmer is waiting for the harvest, the the precious produce of the soil, the the toil of his, or rather the, the fruit of his labor. I've told you in the past about some of my, you know, amateur gardening exploits. And it's just true that, you know, food you grow yourself just tastes better. I know it's all in my head, but it's just, it's the reward of labor. Anyway, this farmer is longing for his crop. And for the crop to be ready, though, it needs something else. It needs rain, which happens to be something out of his control. And so effectively, he's waiting for the rain. He's just looking at the sky each and every day, waiting for the rain. And before modern irrigation, farmers were at the mercy of the rain. Only so much they could do. They could plow a field, sow some seed, maybe prune here and there, but otherwise you're just kind of waiting for the rain. The crops needed an early and a late rain. In that region, they would sow grain in the fall. Then they'd wait for the early rain in October, November, which would germinate the seed And then wait for the late rain in April and May, which would really ripen the harvest. And until then, they they couldn't really harvest. So before the rains would come, there's really nothing the farmer can do but wait. It's a pretty simple, I think, timeless picture of patience. We all get it. And the point is made clear in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, you too, like the farmer, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for not the rain, but the coming of the Lord is near. So in the same way, we need to be patient, eagerly waiting the coming of the Lord. Now, this is the passive side to our patience. There there are many things in life. They're just out of our control, like sometimes unjust suffering from others. There's nothing we can do about it. And for this, we are called to wait on the Lord. It involves a lot of praying, a lot of trusting, a lot of waiting. It's not easy. Why not? Some years are are wet years, you might say, where you're getting so much early rain. You you really have no doubt the late rain is coming. It's easy to expect it. But some years are dry years and the rain, the early rains are sparse. It leaves you wondering and just kind of doubting, are the late rains even going to come? 
Maybe they'll never come. Maybe this is a drought. Maybe this is, is doom. Maybe the rains will never come. And that, that begins the test of faith and trust. And so it goes for us, waiting on the Lord's return. That's supposed to be our hope. Well, you know, the, the longer time goes on, the more we wonder, like, is he ever coming? Are the rains ever going to come? The only difference, though, is that unlike the rain, we have the sure promise of God's word that, yeah, it's coming. It's, the, the coming is coming. The, the parousia, the return of the king is coming. Mark 13, for example, 24 through 26. Christ himself said, after those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. James doesn't take this any further. He doesn't go into any details of Christ's return. There's no timelines or charts here. He just establishes the fact of his second coming. And for now, that will suffice. In that regard, the Bible is crystal clear. What goes up must come down. And Christ, after his resurrection, ascended into heaven, received in the clouds. And as the angels told the disciples, he will return it in the same way. Right? Acts, 11, or Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The angels told the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. He will come in the same way, even the same place. The Bible says actually the Mount of Olives. It's just a matter of time and the faithful are called to take him at his word and trust that and then wait. Okay, you still might wonder, but if that's all true, what do we make of this nearness? Because doesn't James say the coming of the Lord is near? Really? Because it's been like 2,000 years, so what do you make of this nearness? But look, that the New Testament repeats that refrain. Hebrews 10.25, it says, Don't forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Romans 13.12, the night is almost gone. The day is near. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. First John 2, 18. Children, this is the last hour. And then Christ himself in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, three times he says, behold, I am coming quickly. And so what, what do we make of this nearness? The answer is this nearness simply refers to the, the timeline of salvation history. These are the last days, and that means this is the final age in God's timeline before the kingdom. That there's nothing left in this timeline, in God's timeline of redemptive history between this age and the last age, the age of the kingdom. There's no telling when that will happen. The Bible never predicts a day or says even an era. But we are just left with the expectation of imminency. His coming is near. It could happen any time. And we're meant to live with that purifying hope on purpose. Just left it for us to live with an imminent expectation. Now, 2 Peter 3, however, best explains why it's been so long. In fact, since we're so close, just turn there. Just flip from James. Just turn to the right and you'll get to 1 Peter. And then, you know, what do you know? Right after that is 2 Peter. And go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because Peter was dealing with people who were mocking Christians because Christ had not returned. And in Peter's day, it had only been like 30 or 40 years, but already people were saying, he's not coming back. Like it's already been like a generation. You Christians are foolish. And so Peter answers them. Second Peter chapter three, look at verse seven. He says first, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So first he says that God's judgment is coming. And the only thing holding it back right now is God himself. It's like a dam filled with wrath and it's ready to burst open. It's cracking, it's crumbling. You can hear the sound of it breaking down. At any moment, it's going to burst. The wrath will come and it will, it will mean the destruction of ungodly men. That's verse 7. 
But then he says, verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. You remember that verse, right? You know, why is this judgment of the wicked, verse 7, why is that taking so long? And the answer is, it's not. Not to God. You have to realize that to God, time is truly relative. And God does not adhere to our sense of time. If to God, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day that goes both ways, it means time is truly relative to God. And so, look, it's been 2,000 years, but that's like a couple of days at most to God. That's nothing. Just, you know, the point is, don't presume to understand God's control of time. He's the one who made time. So just, just trust him. Trust him to do what is right. You're still asking, okay, but like, why 2,000 years? That this world could have used judgment 1,000 years ago. Still, why, why so long? Why is this taking so long to us? And again, the answer is, it's not. God is not being slow. Look at verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And what we learned here in verse 9 is that God himself is being patient. Macrothumeo, same word. He's patient. God is being long-tempered with his people. God sees this world. It's in sin. It's in rebellion. There's injustice. And this world is worthy of his instant judgment. But he is bearing with the sin of the world. He's being long-suffering to this world that's in rebellion. Why? Well, he says it's to give time and opportunity for his people to repent, believe, and be saved. Because after all, he has another plan here. It's it's not just to judge the world, but also to save. He has a plan of redemption as well, to pluck some out from this world. And God is working to save people per his timetable. We don't know that timetable. It's not for us to know. But it is for us to know that his perceived delay is really just his mercy. If the end came in the year 2000, I would be in hell. Because I wasn't saved till freshman year of college, 2001. I'm thankful for at least 2001 years of delay. And so our response, though, is just to wait. We, we wait on him and his timing. Now, you can turn back to James 5. Let's go backwards to James chapter 5. You know, verse 8, he's telling us, you too, be patient. Like God, just be long-suffering. He adds here, strengthen your hearts. This is another word, sterazo. It means to set fast, to firmly fix. You need to resolve, amidst all this, just resolve to trust God. To firmly fix yourself in his hands. Like, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm just going to resolve to trust my life and future and justice in his hands. This word was... Famously used of Jesus in Luke 9.51, where it says he, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. It means Christ himself in his own heart firmly resolved to, to go to his death. And we likewise here, we're to firmly resolve to, for us, to wait on the Lord to deliver us. And we need a steely resolve not to take matters in our own hands, but just to patiently wait for his coming, which is near. It could happen at, at any time. And so resolve to stay the course. The number of mockers around us may grow. I expect it to grow. People saying, you know, Christ is, is not real. He's not coming back. Christianity is foolish. Christianity is even immoral. You're not accepting. It's nothing new. But the faithful are called to stay the course. Strengthen your heart. Resolve to keep running. And then one day... Like the farmer, you'll receive the reward. You'll reap the harvest. And for us, that's Christ himself. It is his coming. He he is the late rains. His return is what we're longing for. That's the day of our reward. He will come and you'll be welcomed into his kingdom, not shut out. But that only comes to those who patiently wait. Now, a second example. 
Second example here. Number two, like the prophets, speak for the truth. Like the farmer, wait for the reward. Secondly, like the prophets, speak for the truth. Verses 9 and 10. Now, James knows that when we suffer, when we are in trouble, we are so prone to do what? To lash out at others with our speech. And you know, if you've been with us through James, he's had a lot to say about the sins of the tongue, right? Like half of chapter three. And especially in times of pressure, we're so prone to just snap at others, like, like a little nipping dog to just snap at people and, and lash out. And so James squeezes into this discussion a little word on the right and wrong use of speech in trial. Verse nine, he says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So first, he addresses the wrong use of speech, namely to speak against one another in the church. This is almost identical to what James said back in chapter 4. Just look back at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Remember where he said, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge or, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That's actually a meaty text. And I'll just say, go back and download the sermon titled Judgmentalism. And you'll learn all about that. That there is a right and a wrong place of judgment in the church. But James is reminding us of the wrong place, which is to speak against your fellow brother or sister. It's really the sin of slander. You are, you're tearing others down with your speech. You don't have their best interests in mind. It usually comes from an outburst of anger or malice, just harsh, critical, derogatory speech. And sadly, I think we all know when, when we're at our worst, when our, our buttons are all firmly pressed, that sins of the, of the tongue are, are the first to fly. You know, maybe a wife has had an extremely hard day at home with the kids and the husband comes home and he suggests that you haven't done anything all day. That's a great injustice. And she can't let that fly. She can't accept that. And so a verbal assault might begin. And this word for complain speaks of a groan. It's a sigh of bitter resentment. I think every married person knows what this is. You know, in an argument, I'm sure you've all heard from your spouse and given to your spouse just that sigh of complete and utter exasperation, like, <sighs> just can't take it anymore. And it's usually followed by a barrage of sinful speech. And we all know it goes two ways. We're all guilty. We're so prone to this and the weakness of our flesh. But what James is telling us is that's the type of behavior that puts us under the judgment of God. James says the judge is standing right at the door with this reminder. And he again is invoking Christ's nearness, but this time he sets his guns on us. So you should not think of Christ's return to merely mean the judgment of the world. Like, yeah, he'll, he'll judge those wicked people outside. And don't forget 1 Peter 4.17, that judgment begins with the household of God. He starts with us. Now, thankfully, we know this is not a judgment in respect to salvation. That the promise of scripture for those who are in Christ by faith, there's no wrath. That there's no condemnation, Romans 8.1. For those in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. That's, that's the glory of the gospel that we need not fear that coming. We can rest in his salvation. Jesus already died to pay for all of our sins. And those who repent and believe in him and, and trust him with their life for their salvation, for their future, are forgiven, completely forgiven. But there still will be a judgment of believers with respect to evaluation for the sake of rewards. That the master will return and he will evaluate the work of his servants and give them a place in the kingdom accordingly. And so the point is we're going to be held accountable for how we live. Isn't that what James has said over and over? Right? That's why we need to be 
not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word, the master will hold us accountable. That's a good thing. But for now, the point suffices. This is not how we should be using our tongues when we're under pressure, under trial. Don't complain. Don't lash out against your brothers. How should we use our tongue? Verse 10. He's going to now give us the positive example. He says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He says, as a better example, take the prophets. And here he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. These were godly men raised up in times of trial in Israel, spiritual idolatry and adultery. They had the hard task of speaking up and speaking out against Israel's own injustice, where it was God's people, supposedly, who were guilty of, like James says, defrauding the poor, withholding wages, oppressing the righteous. You add to that, you know, some adultery, idolatry. They even got to the point of child sacrifice in Israel's history, how far they had strayed. And so the prophets were called to go, go say something. Like go cry out against that injustice. They were not called to pick up the sword. Neither are we. We are not called to pick up the sword. But they were called to speak up and suffer patiently. And just understand it. To, to suffer patiently does not mean to be silent. It's not, it's not passive in the sense that we, we say nothing, we do nothing. No, they were to speak up and speak out and we are to follow suit. Let the world receive God's testimony. Let them hear his, his word and his will on what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. Let them be convicted of their wrongdoing. So this means we're not going to go bomb an abortion clinic. But at the same time, we, we can't be silent and say nothing. We have to, like the prophets, speak for the truth. And this is what the prophets did. And in so doing, they left an example of what? He says, suffering and patience. You put them together, suffering and patience. Now, of course, people didn't like their convicting message. So they persecuted the prophets. They made them suffer. They treated them unjustly. But the prophets, well, they just kept speaking and they trusted God to deliver them. Even if that meant their death, they were just going to trust God in the end. And for most of them, they never saw the judgment they pronounced in their lifetime. But their hope was in the Lord. They, they patiently endured. They spoke the truth. So Jeremiah, for example, he was telling of the coming destruction of Jerusalem for their wickedness. And they didn't want to hear that. They did not like that message. So they threw him in a pit, left him to die. He would have died. And his response, just silently, patiently sit there endure. He was rescued that time. And after rescue, he just went back to, to speaking the same message until Jerusalem was destroyed, by the way. And then there was Daniel, who was merely praying to his God, representing his, uh, representing his truth. And for that, he was thrown into the lion's den. His response, there's no protest. Didn't take up the sword. He just, well, patiently endured. And he trusted himself to the God who can deliver from the lion's mouth. You know, prophet after prophet, you're going to find examples of suffering and patience. Like Jesus himself said, Matthew 23, 37, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You know, those who stand with Christ and speak his truth, they're always going to come under the persecution of the world. We are promised such suffering, but follow the lead of the prophets who who suffered and just endured. They endured. They didn't fight fire with fire. They didn't resort to evil. They just kept speaking the truth and they patiently suffered. They were long suffering. It's one of my favorite words. Just, just think about that word and let it sink in. Long suffering. Does that describe God? Yeah, we saw that. Does that describe Jesus? Yes. Does that describe the prophets? It does. Does it describe you? Are you long-suffering? Even when people wrong you, are you long-suffering? That's our call. Lastly here, a third and final example of, of suffering patiently. 
We'll finish with number three. Like Job, look for the blessing. Like Job, look for the blessing. He says in verse 11, you know, we count those blessed who endured. So James now adds a third word to express how we are to live. First, he says, be patient, macrothumeo. Second, strengthen your heart, sterizo. And third now, endure, hupomeno. There's no test. You don't have to remember all that. I'm just, just saying. You know, this word is more active. It speaks of the resolve to stay the course. It's like the runner. The runner has to endure to finish the race. That, that's not a passive thing like waiting. This is another angle here. This is the, the active side that you have to actively do something. You have to actively endure. You've got to fight through the pain and the suffering and, and finish. It, it's so much easier just to quit. It's vastly easier to do nothing, throw in the towel, compromise the faith, join the world, have a nice, easy life in middle-class suburban America, and just, just quit. It's way easier. But this endurance is the resolve to keep going and pursuing the Lord despite opposition. The Thessalonian church was known for having this quality of endurance. Let me just read for you what Paul said of them in 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. He then goes on to tell them that when Christ returns, he will deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel. But to those who, who do, he will give relief. And that's our hope as well. It's the blessing we long for, that, that relief when Christ returns. And it comes for those who endure. James gives his own example. That's the Thessalonian example. James, though, points to another well-known Old Testament example in Job. This blessing on those who endure. Look again at verse 11. He says, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You've heard it, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume most, if not all of you, have heard of the story of Job from the Old Testament. It's one of endurance through suffering. It's kind of an understatement, endurance through suffering. Job's affliction all at once pretty much lost everything. His 10 children, dead, gone overnight, lost his 10 children. His estate, his wealth, his livestock, his fields, gone overnight, lost all of his wealth. Then his physical health, covered in sores, head to toe, just miserable suffering, lost his health. And so, you will call that suffering. Job, in all this, he wrestled with the why me question. But here's what he did not do. He did not abandon his faith. He did not turn his back on God. He did not stop running the race. And he never took the advice of his wife, which was to just curse God and die. What he did do was Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave... The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And then Job 2.10 says, he responds to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Nowhere does it say enduring trials was easy for Job. We, we know clearly it wasn't. But Despite the, the lack of knowledge, he just clung to God in faith and he endured. And as a result, he received the blessing, the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Why did God test Job like this? Why did he let him suffer all this? Well, for one, it was to prove Satan wrong and to demonstrate that true faith cannot be destroyed. But for Job's sake, God was working to test his faith, meaning to refine his faith, to strengthen his faith. And if you don't believe me, is that not how James began his letter? Have you forgotten James 1, 
2 through 4, just look back. His very, after his introduction, the, the very first thing James says in his letter, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, hupomone, same word. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God is working in these trials to to produce endurance in the lives of his people. It's an essential quality or uh, quality. And without endurance, faith would not last. It's like the muscles in a runner's leg. If they're untested and untried, like they can run, but they're not going to last. Their legs are just not going to take them very far because they don't have built-in endurance. So they won't finish the race. But when they're trained and refined, the runner gains the quality of endurance. They can not just run, but they can finish. And you have to finish. And that quality of endurance, though, just remember, it only comes by opposition, resistance, and suffering. But once you gain it, once you gain this endurance, you've effectively gained the result, the reward, the blessing. And regarding Job, you remember the end of his story? He lost everything, but in the end, the Lord brought about him a twofold increase of everything he had lost. Remember that? So he gained back in the end 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkeys, and he had 10 more children. In that world, wealth was in livestock. So he just gained back twice of everything. As a side note, people always wonder, why didn't he have 20 kids? He lost 10. Why not 20? And that's because his 10 children who were lost, they they were dead, but they weren't gone. We presume they went to be with the Lord, but they weren't gone. So he did have 20 kids. Just 10 had gone to be with the Lord. But the point is, God is good. He has good purposes for his people, even in testing them and allowing them to suffer opposition even injustice, that he might prove their faith and refine it. And his design is to make his people like Christ. And oftentimes that comes with the fellowship of his sufferings. And just don't forget, Christ suffered injustice too. The greatest of all. And his response was not to fight back, but to patiently endure and to entrust himself to God who judges righteously. Again, 1 Peter 2.23. We'll never know that level of suffering. We'll never know suffering God's wrath. Because of what Jesus did for us, we'll never know that suffering. That the trials and the afflictions of this life are are the, that's as bad as it will ever get for us because of what he did for us. And for us, in turn, we're just called to patiently endure and receive God's ultimate blessing in the end. And that blessing for us is glory. It's beholding Christ and being transformed into his image of glory. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. So realize God's purpose and all the trials of life, all you're going through. He's not out to destroy you, but to test you and refine you that you gain something precious called endurance that will guarantee you finish your race and you need to finish. And you just have to remember as James ends that God is compassionate and merciful. See how he says that at the end? God is good. He's loving. He's just. This fallen world invites suffering. And the fact that God is being long-suffering with this world means, for now, a lot of injustice will just, it will go. will go unanswered. And that means his people might suffer. In fact, they will suffer. They're going to suffer a lot. Wrongs will be committed. But God will, in his time, rescue and redeem. He will show mercy and compassion to the repentant, And a heavenly inheritance awaits those who persevere. At the end of a parable, Jesus said this. Just listen, Luke 18, 7 and 8. And Christ said, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? 
I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's coming. He will deliver. He will bring about justice. But how many faithful will be left? As for you and your household, you just need to make sure that whatever you're going through, whatever hardship or suffering or even injustice, that you fix your hope on Christ. You you firmly resolve to to trust in him and you're just going to wait. You're going to patiently endure whatever comes and, and trusting in him. He will make all things right. You must endure. The end is near. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word has a message we need to hear, especially in this, this day. We, we see writing on the walls that, that things are, are bad and getting worse for those who, who trust you, who follow Christ, and who live by his word, your will that you've revealed. And who knows, but these days may be upon us sooner rather than later. We, we need to be reminded this world is not our home. Our home is with you. Our home is with Christ. And as he returns, we will find our relief. We will find our home. Make that our hope, Lord. We need to, to set our mind on things above, not on things below. This world is passing away and also it's, it's lust. But the one who does the will of the Father will live forever. We, we need this hope and build it in us this morning. For those who don't have it, I pray they, they come to know Christ. Even those here this morning, they would turn to him. And, and reckon that, that they themselves are under and are facing the judgment of, of a holy and just God. But there is good news and a savior that the God of love already sent his son to die and rise for them. And that if they believe and trust, they can be transformed and saved and given a, a heavenly home. And for us, as we depart, as we just dwell on these truths, may it become a functional hope that we endure we may suffer, we may suffer long, Lord, but may we be long-suffering in return. Now, work in us the same spirit that Christ endured as he, he faced the cross, he faced all that enmity. And, uh, and in the meantime, we just pray, Lord, come quickly. This is a church's prayer in every age, Lord, come quickly. We'll trust your timing, but as for us, we'll pray, Lord, come quickly and set things right. Come for your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.